Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We'll read verses 31 through 46 together this morning. Matthew 25. We'll finish off this chapter together this morning. Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then you will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings on your word this day. We thank You, Holy Spirit, for not only having inspired these words, for having superintended the words of Scripture as You work through human writers, but also for illuminating the hearts and minds of Your people, for opening our eyes to see, our hearts to believe, our wills to comply to what we learn when we open Your Holy Word together. We pray You do that work in us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, up to these last words on the Mount of Olives, Jesus has been warning His listeners to be ready for, his, for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. They need not fear missing the day when Jesus returns, nor listen to those who say, Oh, Jesus is over here, or Jesus is over there. Because Jesus explains that the coming of the Son of Man will be like lightning which strikes from the east and shines as far as the west. Jesus' return will not be in some obscure corner of the world. His return will be plainly evident to everyone. There will be great tribulation leading up to His coming. We're told that the tribes of the earth will mourn. And then the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. This event, while still yet in the future, is as sure an event that has already happened in the past. It is absolutely certain. It is coming. However, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, only the Father alone. Jesus says it will be as in the days of Noah. People will be marrying and giving in marriage. People will be eating and drinking. And then suddenly the day of judgment will come. So the only way to be ready for a future event that is sure, for which we don't know when, is to be ready now. That's Jesus' point. The only way you can be prepared is to be prepared continually to be ready right now. You have no time to put this readiness off. You must be ready now. And to reiterate the importance of this readiness, Jesus told a few parables, one after another here in his Sermon on the Mount of Olives. He told the parable of the homeowner and the thief, the parable of the master who goes on a journey. He tells the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. The common warning throughout all of those parables, though, 
is a consequence that comes if someone is not ready when he returns. If a master, a homeowner, is not ready when the thief comes, his possessions will be robbed. If, if a servant beats fellow slaves and gets drunk, thinking that the master is never going to come back, when the master does return, he tells us that he's going to cut that servant in pieces and throw him out with the hypocrites. Those virgins who were not ready with oil in their lamps wouldn't, weren't admitted into the wedding feast. The man who merely hid his talent in the ground, the talent that was delegated to him, would have it stripped from him and he would be cast into outer darkness. A couple of times, Jesus repeats the phrase that those who are cast out or not included will go to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus closes his Olivet Discourse with an analogy from shepherding. He describes the separation of sheep and goats, by which he further explains something that he had already brought up earlier in this teaching. Back in Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, he described the fact that there will be two men in a field, one taken and the other left. That there will be two women grinding in the mill, one will be taken and the other one left. Here at the end of the discourse, Jesus uses an analogy, but pretty much otherwise drops the parabolic teaching. And he's just plainly explaining that there will be a separation. There will be a great divide. And that divide will bring with it eternal consequences. But to understand the separation to come, the great divide that is to come, you need to recognize two prior divisions. So we're going to consider three divides together this morning. First, the initial divide. Secondly, the divine divide. And third, the final divide. Let's begin with the initial divide. Do you understand that the future day of separation, this future day of judgment, the day of divide that is coming, is a consequence of a past day of separation, a past day of division? To understand what's going to happen, you have to first understand how we got here. And for that, we thank the Lord for the book of Genesis. We travel back to Adam and Eve, to the serpent and the tree. It's sin that has separated us from God. But in the beginning, it was not that way. After each day's creation, God says it was good. And then after the sixth day, God says it was very good. In the beginning, there was blessed communion between God and man in creation. Everything was in perfect harmony. Adam exercised a loving dominion over the creatures. He named each animal one by one. He noticed also, though, that there was none of the animals that was suitable to him. And so he then enjoys complete unity with his wife, a woman who is specially prepared for him by God. He experienced unobstructed relationship with God. The Garden of Eden was paradise in the full meaning of the term, not enjoyable merely because of the blessings that God afforded to Adam and Eve there, but because God himself could be enjoyed. And there is no obstacles to that communion. There is nothing standing in the way of true and genuine, ongoing, loving relationship. You see, Adam and Eve had the best thing. For they had the one thing that ultimately matters. They had pure and undefiled relationship with God, their creator, their sustainer, their everything. But you see, sin changed all that. Adam and Eve eat from the tree which had been forbidden to them. And from that moment, sin enters into the garden and everything is changed. Adam leads his wife into hiding. They run away in an attempt to cover themselves. They know that they're naked and they're ashamed. They become scared of God. What what used to be transparency and openness now becomes closedness and hiding and running away. They fear transparency because to be transparent with God now means to reveal their disobedience, to reveal their rebellion. What mattered most is immediately obstructed Their relationship with the God who made them and fashioned them is now in trouble. When called out into the open by God, rather than owning his sin, Adam passes the buck. He blames Eve and, by consequence, God as well, for God had given him this woman. It's the woman whom you gave me, God, that's at fault here. 
Eve then blames the serpent. It has to be someone else's fault. And while it is true that the serpent is responsible for the temptation that he put forward that day, both Adam and Eve must own their own sin. They ate. They disobeyed. And in that day they ate, of the, that they ate, they died. It's obvious that they would die eventually physically. But understand that that very day they died spiritually. A divide had been erected between them and their God. And no matter how much they might try to maneuver, they were guilty. No matter how much they might try to justify their sin, it was inexcusable. No matter how much they might try to hide, they would be found. No matter how much they might try to cover themselves, their coverings were inadequate. So out of the garden, they must go. Out of the place of God's special blessing. Now they would experience increased difficulty in labor. For creation would not provide for them in quite the same way as it had before. Thorns and thistles would grow. Man would discover just how hard life lived in rebellion against God is. Eve would find increased pain in childbirth. You see, pain would become the common experience for man from that point forward. Even the most joyous moments, like giving birth to a baby, would have pain associated with it. It was not this way in the beginning. And Adam's and Eve's relationship with one another would also change. You see, when a created thing is not rightly related to its creator, then you can be sure to find that that created thing also doesn't function well within the rest of the created universe. When there's improper in, uh, malfunction in the relationship between a created thing and its creator, then there's also going to be malfunction in its relationship with other created things existing underneath that same creator. Men and women made different by design, fashioned by God to complement one another, would now find disunity creeping in. How long does it take Adam to cast his wife to the side? It's her fault, you know? How quickly did that happen? Like thorns and thistles of the ground, so thorns and thistles would arise in the context of marriage. Hard work would be required to keep the weeds out of their marriage. Time would need to be spent breaking up hardened soil. Waters of encouragement would continually need to be poured out. Pruning would be necessary. We're told that Eve's desire would be for her husband, yet he would rule over her. The phrase there is interesting because it, it has a lot of similar sense to it as when we're told just a few pages later that sin's desire was for Cain was crouching at the door. It, it appears that this disunity in marriage would be found all the way to the core. A woman who was made to compliment her husband by aiding him in the task that God had given him to do, submitting to his leadership, would find herself struggling with that submission, desiring to exercise control over the man that she's married to. And man, in his sinful response, would be also less than godly. Rather than serving his wife in love, his response would be to, rule over her, using his strength to dominate her rather than to protect, care, and nurture her. You see, there were tremendous consequences for the advent of sin. Now, it's a divide that sometimes is not easy to distinguish at present because things are not always as they appear. Ever since the fall, deception and duplicity are very present in the world around us. Sadly, human beings are really good at presenting fronts of giving an appearance, of putting on a face for others to see. There are many who, in the end, will say, we're told, Lord, Lord, who meanwhile will be cast out. They may re rehearse their list of accomplishments, but it will not suffice. Their only hope, ultimately, is cling to cling to Jesus, to trust in His substitutionary death, to depend upon His righteousness. It was common practice to allow sheep and goats to graze together. This is why Jesus is making reference to this. And then for various reasons, you might want to separate them. We don't have any indication in the text before us as to why, the, um, from a pasturing sense, they would want to be separated. Some have offered that perhaps it's because goats had uh, less protection against the cold and needed to be put into an area where they could be kept warm through the evening, whereas sheep were more uh, fine in general out in the open. But the point here is this, that the shepherd can separate his sheep from the goats. 
The Lord knows who are His. He can separate what we're incapable of separating. For He knows the heart and He can accomplish this perfectly. He knows the division that exists. You see, there is a division, but sometimes it's not always noticed by us. But God knows certainly what's in the heart. The parable of the tares illustrates this reality very well. The wheat and tares are allowed to grow to maturity, for to remove the tares early would disturb the wheat, for they have a similar appearance at first. But when fully grown, the difference is obvious. So the Lord allows at the present genuine Christians and fake imposters to stand side by side until the day of judgment. This is a good encouragement to us as a church. While we uphold sound doctrine and we refute those who contradict, we certainly don't have to go on heresy hunts or stump out any individual within the church that we think might be a potential false convert. That's not our job. Our job is to preach the truth, to stand for what is true and right, to bring correction, yes, for, for certain, but certainly not to try to judge the heart. Because we can't do that. But the Lord can and does. The Lord Jesus will take care of this in the end. In the meantime, we preach sound doctrine, refuting those contradicts, and counsel and exhort believers and unbelievers alike. It's a divide that is very real and true. A divide that sometimes is hard to see because of the duplicity that exists around us. But it is, the good news is, a divide that can be bridged. That division between man and God is a divide that can be bridged. The consequences look quite grim. Yet there's even an indication in the opening chapters of Genesis that that is not the end of the story. The serpent would not have the last word. On its belly, it would now go, brought low to the ground, and its response wouldn't be some sort of repentant humility, but instead a growing, festering anger. The serpent would strike out against the seed of the woman by striking his heel. Now, we can see this even in nature today, right? We just talk about snakes in general. Um, I understand that they help with the rodent population, but as far as I'm concerned, a snake within 10 feet of me is not a good snake. Um, but we see this with snakes. We see this with snakes still to this day, how they strike out against humans, how, for that matter, all wild animals act and treat humans. Do you understand that's a result of the fall? It was not that way in the beginning. When Adam is naming the animals, he's not fearful that the bear is going to bite his arm off, right? He's naming the bear. He's inspecting the bear. There's no indication that there be any animosity between the animals and Adam and Eve. The fact that snakes strike is a result of the fall. It's a condition, by the way, which will be righted in the new heavens and new earth. We have indication that a child will play by the cobra's den, that the lamb will lie down with the lion, that animals... That animosity will be removed in the coming glorious new heavens and new earth. I talk to my kids often about that. What is it going to be like to have like a pet lion? You know, what would it be like to have, you know, like vipers and and just be able to just play with them and they're not going to do anything to you? What's it like to have dogs that would never bark at you or bite at you or any of those sorts of things? What an incredible reality that will be. But at one time it was that way. And what we experience today is a result of the fall. But the serpent that's being referred to here, we know is the serpent of old, the devils, is referred to other places in the scriptures, would strike at the seed of the woman. But this striking at the seed of the woman would result in his own undoing, because it's prophesied here that the serpent's head would be crushed. Many theologians have pointed to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Many people refer to this as the first gospel. We don't normally speak of a woman's seed. It's usually a man's seed that's being referred to. It appears perhaps that this is a veiled reference to a coming one who would be born without a man's activity. One born of a woman. One who would be overshadowed by the Most High. Who would be with child by the work of the Holy Spirit. This child would not go unnoticed by the serpent. The serpent would strike out against him. However, in the very day in which the serpent may think he had won, the serpent's own actions would be his own undoing. The coming death of Jesus Christ would be swallowed up in victorious resurrection and Jesus' ascent into heaven. Now all that awaits is the final judgment for that serpent of old, where he'll be thrown into the lake of fire forevermore. What's fascinating is that the rest of this narrative gives hints at, not, at what's needed for man as well. That's what's going to happen with the serpent. There's a hint about what's going to happen with the serpent. His head will be crushed. 
He's going to strike out against the seed of the woman, but his head will ultimately be crushed. There is final and ultimate judgment coming for the serpent. But God's not only going to deal with Satan, he's also going to deal with man. And what's so fascinating is that the text even seems to perhaps give hints as to how this is going to go down. Remember Adam and Eve, they tried to earn coverings for themselves, but they were completely inadequate. After Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, God fashions for them coverings. He makes them skins from animals. Remember, up to this point, there had been no death. Death is a consequence of sin. There was no death before the fall. And meanwhile here, now there is a death. For in order for these skins to have been placed on Adam and Eve, there must have been something that was killed. There was a sacrifice of life. There was a pouring out of blood that led to the covering of Adam and Eve. During the days of Moses, you're called the books of Moses. I was having a discussion with my kids this week. Who wrote Genesis? We had a fun discussion on that. But so Moses, the writer of these first five books, would have been one who, obviously, with the nation of Israel, they knew the connection between blood and life. They had just experienced the Passover, right? In which they were called to sacrifice lambs and place the blood over the doorposts of their house so that the death angel would pass over their home and the firstborn children there, firstborn sons would be left alive. They knew that blood was the cost for life. They knew this also in the sacrificial legislation that was given in the books of Moses. How God would outline how they deal with sin as a nation in general. How they deal with it individually. And we'd see a continual stream of sacrifices throughout all of this time. But one of the things that the repeated sacrifice does indicate to us is that the blood of goats and calves could never actually take away sin. What was required is a perfect sacrifice. Nothing other than the Lamb of God, God's own Son, could lay down His life and shed His blood on behalf of God's children, and grant them forgiveness forevermore. You see, what man is incapable of doing, covering his own guilt, dealing with his own sin, he can't do that. God has accomplished. What we can't do, this is the good news, God has accomplished. And he did it in his son. God gave his own son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, there was an initial division But it's not a division that cannot be bridged. It cannot be bridged by us, but it can be bridged by Jesus. Let's consider how that's possible by looking at our second point this morning, the divine divide. The divine divide. Now recognize that by default, we're separated from God. And we bear resemblance to our Father. We bear a family resemblance which is ultimately um, identifiable. You can't help but show the marks of your parents. Now, certainly we're not carbon copies of our parents. There might be a good different way, amount of ways in which we're different from our parents. But there are still resemblances that we bear to our parents. And they're not just physical. We can have emotional resemblances and personality resemblances and General aptitude resemblances. Whenever somebody meets my brother and then they meet me, they're like, oh, we can tell you're Adam's brother. I mean, they almost instantly. And we look very much different physically. I mean, he's like towering over me and much stronger than I've ever been. Right. But meanwhile, there's still a resemblance that we bear to one another as brothers. And certainly all of you know this as well. We all bear resemblances to one another or to our parents. What we see dimly in family resemblances on earth. You can be assured that whoever is your spiritual father, you will bear resemblance to him. Your spiritual father will have an impact on you. Should you have God as your father, then you will do the deeds of your father. If you love him, you will love what he loves and you will hate what he hates. You will live to please him. You will find your deepest joy in him. If God is your father, that has an implication on your desires on your will. It has an implication on your emotions. It has an implication on your very life. And understand that there is no one who is fatherless. Either you are a servant of God, a part of His kingdom, or you're a child of wrath. Ephesians 2. Indulging the desires of the, of, of the flesh and of the mind. Enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, the devil who came to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, He says, you do the deeds, the desires of your father. And there he refers to the devil. 
He says the devil is your father. And he's speaking to the religious elite there in Jerusalem. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan, ultimately. And by default, we don't enter into this world as God lovers. You don't enter into this world as a God lover. We hate God from birth. And that hatred shows itself in purposeful rebellion and thoughtless neglect. We've said it before. You don't have to teach a child how to sin. It is in their nature. We are born separated from God. We are born spiritually dead. Men in a state of rebellion show that. Show that in their actions. Their status is noticeable in what they do. Now, it's interesting here in this text is that Jesus ends up saying that the division of the sheep and goats is not even made on the basis of something that people have done that they shouldn't have, but on what they should have done that they didn't. Here what we have outlined are sins of omission. He says, I can separate the sheep and goats by this fact that the goats do not show this sort of love and compassion towards the least of my brothers. The sheep do. The sheep show this sort of love and compassion, this active, working love and compassion towards the least of my brothers, whereas the goats do not. God sees right through empty professions. People can say anything from their lips. That's why one of the tragedies of today's kind of obsession with the sinner's prayer is that often it gives people assurance that they're saved because they said some words off of their mouth when their hearts are not near or changed or converted. There's no real repentance. There's no real love for God and love for what God loves. If none of that is present within their hearts, there's not real conversion. Conversion changes a man. A man is changed. And by which, yes, he absolutely then professes Jesus as Lord. He, this comes off of his lips because it's in his heart. But it is possible for someone to say something off of their lips that is not present in their hearts. Let me clarify. We are saved by faith alone, not our works. However, the reality of our faith, the veracity of our faith is seen in our lives. Faith without works is dead being alone. That's what we read in James 2 this morning. Saving faith is alive and active. It works. And the works that we do are the things that we do or the things that we don't do are evidence either of the grace of God operating in our life or the rejection of God's grace from our lives. That distinction, that division is noticeable in what we do, or in this case, in what we fail to do. So what? how does this bridge get erected? How does this bridge happen? How do we go from being separated from God to then being in God's family? How do we go from being a goat, if we're a goat by default, how do we go from being a goat to being a sheep? What was required to make this happen? Well, Ironically, in order to fix the separation, there had to be a separation. To fix the separation, a separation was required. We each have gone astray. We each turned our own way. We needed a shepherd to come to us. We needed one to come find us, to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us. And the good shepherd came near to make us his sheep. The length to which Jesus went to rescue us was truly divine. And I'm purposely playing on words here with the term divine. The word divine can be informally defined by something that has extreme excellence or worth. Sometimes people people say, well, that that dessert was divine. We use this kind of term. It speaks of something that has extreme excellence or extreme worth. But that definition, that informal definition, flows from its formal one, and that is anything pertaining to God is divine. Both meanings apply here. The plan to rescue sinners and fix their separation required a sacrifice of divine proportion. To fix our separation problem, a divine sacrifice was required. A sacrifice of extreme excellence, perfect Excellence, because it required God himself to save us. You see, 
Jesus was willing to be separated from His Heavenly Father to redeem us from the curse. This is what's so fascinating about the Gospel. It's out of the horror of our sin and out of the injustice of Jesus' crucifixion shines the beauty of God's marvelous mercy and grace. There's certainly some mystery in this. That when when Jesus goes to the cross, the God-man is hanging on the tree. That He takes the wrath of God upon Himself. He was made sin who knew no sin. He was made to be sin on our behalf. Jesus was willing to be separated from His Heavenly Father to redeem us. Who can really fathom this? Great theologians of the past have pondered it. God forsaken of God. Jesus says, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says that, he quotes from the first line of Psalm 22, which many have referred to as the Psalm of the Cross. Psalm 22. Encourage you on your own. Read through Psalm 22 and notice the uniqueness of it. How it seems to describe in vivid detail Roman crucifixion practices and the events surrounding Jesus' own death, even down to the casting of lots for his clothing. All being outlined there in Psalm 22, right a thousand years before any of that ever happened. Well, we cannot fathom how it is possible for God to be separated of God, for God the Son to be forsaken by God the Father. We are are placed in complete awe of it. Jesus was willing to be cursed so we could be blessed. You see, God must maintain His justice and His righteousness. He must punish sin. He can't just allow it to persist. It must be punished. But God's grace and mercy provided an avenue whereby God would absorb God's wrath. God the Son would take the wrath of God the Father upon Himself in the place of wretched sinners. He was willing to be separated from His Father, the one through whom He had enjoyed communion, closest communion throughout all of eternity so that we could be brought near. He suffered to end our suffering. He died to give us life. God didn't spare His own Son, so we could be spared. This God did. You see, the Gospel call is so simple. It's repent and believe in Jesus. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus. Trust that His work is sufficient. And by believe, we don't mean merely believe that He exists. Even the demons believe that Jesus exists. They know that He exists. We're even told that they believe that there's a God and they shudder. They even have an emotional response to the thought of God. Believing in Christ means trusting in Him. It means leaning completely upon Him. It means laying down your futile efforts to justify yourself before God. It means declaring all your good deeds are worthless to gain access to God. It means humbling yourself before God, pleading for mercy on account of not your righteousness, because you don't have any, but Christ's righteousness. It means laying down your excuses. It means admitting that you're a sinner. It means acknowledging that you deserve death and you deserve hell. Every Christian must understand you deserve hell. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, asking a Christian asks for mercy not because he or she deserves it or has earned it, but on account of God's own character and nature. Knowing that God is a loving, forgiving, gracious, merciful God. And trusting that you can be forgiven because Jesus died in the place of sinners who cry out to Him for forgiveness. You see, faith is not walking an aisle. It's not being baptized. It's not repeating words of a prayer or going to church or doing good things. Faith is not a work. It is a gift. It's a supernatural trust in God. A gift given by God Himself. That gift, once given, has massive implications. Because the one who is gifted with faith is forever changed. You're not the same. All those who are saved show fruit of that salvation. Jesus' disciples will be known by their fruit. 
You see here, not good works which earn them a place in God's kingdom, but good works that flow out of having received the free grace of God. This is just how people who have experienced God's love behave. Those who have had their hearts filled with Christ's love love others. It's obvious that these individuals that Jesus speaks to didn't do works to be saved. They're even surprised when he says, when did we do any of those things, Jesus? When did we do any of those things? And Jesus says, whenever you did it, the least of these, you did it unto me. David Platt said, a heart that is truly trusted in Christ and a life that is truly longing for Christ will be consumed with serving men and women who are in Christ. You see, looking at action does a really great job of removing duplicity and hypocrisy, which is all too prevalent in us. Remember, Jesus' most harsh words were for the religious leaders who looked on the exterior like they had it all together when their hearts were far from God. What's the identifying mark that Jesus identifies here? He says, it's how an individual treats the least of these. And he refers to those, what's the least of who? The least of these brothers of mine. Jesus says, it's someone's treatment of the least of the brothers of mine that can instantly identify whether they're a sheep or goat. Jesus explains who his brothers are. That's the next question. Well, who are his brothers? Well, in Matthew 12, an interesting little occasion, which we won't get into all the details of, but you can look this up. Matthew 12, verse 48 through 50. Jesus identifies who his brother is. It's the one who does the will of his father. That's my brother. So in other words, it's his children. It's his father's children that are his brothers. In other words, when Jesus says it's how people treat these brothers of mine, he's saying it's how people treat his church. It's how people treat believers in him, those who are in Christ. Now, this is not to say that we don't show compassion to people who aren't Christians. Not the point. What Jesus is saying is that identifying distinguishing mark of someone who is a sheep is the way they treat other sheep, the way they treat believers, the way they treat the least brothers of Jesus. You can tell you can tell where they are with Jesus by the way they treat other Christians. Isn't this an identifying characteristic today? If you go out in the public market street and say, I am a Christian, watch how people treat you. If they love Jesus, they'll love you. If they hate Jesus, they'll hate you. It's a very easy distinguishing thing today. What reception do Christians receive in public discourse today? The moment you start talking about Jesus, often, by the world that we live in, you're either branded as some crazy person or a lunatic, right? One of those sorts of things. Jesus says, small deeds of kindness shown to the least of our brothers is an indication of who we really are. These are the sorts of things that seldom hit newspapers. You know, never be a newspaper headline that says, you know... Someone in church gives young child a glass of water, you know, or, or these sort of things. You won't see that in the newspaper headlines. But in heaven, these are the chief stories. These are the stories that God, Jesus is going to bring out. He's going to talk about. You were there. You were showing me love, my dear son, when you showed love to this brother of mine. Action taken towards Jesus and towards Jesus' disciples are actions taken towards Jesus. Let me say that again. Actions taken towards Jesus' disciples are actions taken towards Jesus. Or inactivity shown to Jesus' disciples is inactivity shown to Jesus. Matthew 18.5. Anyone who welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, Jesus says. Welcome a child like this, you're welcoming me. Matthew 10, verse 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. He says, when he sends them out to do ministry, he says, any house that welcomes you in, they're welcoming me in. Because you represent me. There's a solidarity between Jesus and his people. And so as a result, he can say, I can tell who my sheep are because my sheep love my sheep. My people love my people. This is one of the reasons why a person who says, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I have nothing to do with the church. There's concern there. There's serious concern there. Because those who love Jesus love what Jesus loves. And what does Jesus love? He loves his church. He loves his bride. How can you not love? If you love Jesus, how can you not love what he loves? You have to love what he loves. He loves his church. And he's gifted each one of his sheep to minister to the rest of the sheep. We're to build one another up, Ephesians 4. We're to edify one another. Live in community with one another. Jesus says this is one of the distinguishing features of his sheep. 
is that they do things of compassion and kindness to those who are in sick or in prison. Imagine, especially in those days, you know, today we have all of these, you know, you know, 18 germ sanitizer stations before I get to the hospital room, right? I've been lathered with hand sanitizer before I get anywhere close to the hospital room. Back then, you had no idea what this person's suffering from. You could catch the same thing. If you're going to visit this person, you could be catching the same thing they've got. You see, it's a person who's selfless who says, I don't care. I'm going to minister to them. I'm going to go pray with them. I'm going to be with them. It doesn't matter what they have. I'll take on their sickness. Just as our Lord has taken on our sufferings on our behalf. The one that visits those who are in prison. And prisons today are like, you know, a five-star hotel compared to prisons back then. Sometimes people weren't even fed food. The only way you got food is if you had some people around there that had some compassion on you, threw you a couple crusts of bread. You hoped they had family or friends that would come and visit you or help you. Jesus describes these sorts of situations. Those situations that hardly anyone else would ever notice, but Jesus notices them all. He says, this is a distinguishing mark of my children. My sheep, I can, deter, I can see them. I know who they are. They show this in the way in which they live in community with the rest of my sheep. Jesus' words to Saul when he's persecuting the church. Remember what Jesus said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, he says me. Paul is breathing threats. He's got letters. He's going to you know, persecute Christians. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You see, there's solidarity there. When there's an injustice done to one of Jesus' people, it's an injustice done to Jesus. When this is done to you because of your ministering in my name, Jesus says, blessed are you for being persecuted for my name's sake. He says, I'm the one being persecuted, not you. It's really me that they're persecuting. And so then this passage just flips that around. In the same sense, when something good is done to one of Jesus' people, it's a good done to Jesus. Jesus says, whenever one of these things happens, one of the least of these, it's being done to me. You see, Jesus' own ministry was to the poor and outcast. He would show compassion to those who were weak and feeble. He selflessly helped those in deepest need. He says, if you follow me, you'll have that same character too. You'll have that sort of compassion and love for others. You can see how that's picked up by the apostles and the rest of the New Testament. There's several passages that speak to it. Um, even Randy in Sunday School mentioned this. First John, though, is just like one of the best places to see it. Like John really grabs hold of this. He understands this. I just want to read a couple of passages from First John. First one's from 4, verses 7 through 11. Listen to the connection between love for God and love for God's people. You cannot pick and choose here. Love for God shows itself in love for God's people. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now listen, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It goes right along with Christian's song this morning too, right? This is the whole idea. If He's given everything for us, how can we not give everything to Him? If He's loved us this way, how can we not love others in the same? 1 John 4, 19-21 We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Say it again. If anyone says, I love God, but I hate him, he says, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to also lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods... See this? And sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Doesn't it sound like if you see your brother naked, give him something to wear. If you see him thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. The point is this. Those who love Jesus love those whom Jesus died for. Those who love Jesus love those whom Jesus gave everything for to save. 
We seek ways to use our gifts in the edification of the body. We desire to enrich the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, well, this brings us to the final divide. Because you see, a day of separation, the great divide is coming. The Son of Man, we're told, will come in glory. And His coming will be quite different than His first coming. He's going to be accompanied by angels, and He'll sit on a throne of glory. J.C. Ryle comments, The same Jesus who was born in the manger of Bethlehem and took upon Him the form of a servant, who was despised and rejected of men, and often had nowhere to lay His head, who was condemned by the princes of this world, beaten, scourged, and nailed to the cross, that same Jesus will come Himself to judge the world when He comes in His glory. Let's just do a little quick contrasting element here, right? In Jesus' first coming, He was visited by shepherds. In His second, He'll be accompanied by angels. In His first coming, He came humbly, without any form of majesty. In His second, He'll come arrayed in glory. In His first, He was laid in an animal's feeding trough. But in His second, He'll sit on the throne of His glory. In his first, Jesus submitted himself to the judgment of wicked men. But in his second, Jesus will reign and he will bring wicked men to judgment. Don't allow the manner in which Jesus came in his first coming to lead you to believe that that's how he's going to come when he returns. Oh no. He will, he, he's going to, you who is willing to take the lowest place to rescue sinners is now going to come again as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Matthew Henry put it this way. His first coming was under a black cloud of obscurity. His second will be in a bright cloud of glory. What's going to happen? He's going to come in His glory. He's going to sit on His throne. And He's going to judge the nations. We're told the nations are gathered before Him. They're all gathered for the purpose of being separated. They're all being gathered for one grand purpose. And that is to separate them. Everyone who has ever lived will give an account to God. All will be brought forward to receive their sentence. The nations will be brought before King Jesus. And there will be two and only two categories. There is no third category. There is just two categories. The sheep and the goats. The sheep will be placed on his right and are told the goats will be placed on the left. All of the distinctions don't matter. Your earthly status, your economic situation, your political position, your financial net worth, your intellectual prowess, your popularity, your ability, your educational attainments, your business successes. None of those things figure into the final equation. Like, oh, 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 you are a CEO of the company? Oh, okay. No, that doesn't matter. Oh, you are so super popular? Doesn't matter. Oh, you were once the president? Doesn't matter. None of those distinctions matter. All that matters is, are you a sheep or are you a goat? This great divide will be leveled. It will be a complete and irreversible divide. It will be the last and final one in which a permanent separation will be forever fixed in place. All wrongs will be righted. Perfect justice will reign. Sinners will receive eternal punishment. What all of us deserve and those who are in Christ will receive eternal inheritance. This is mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust will awake, to ever, some to everlasting life, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Note, everlasting life, everlasting contempt. There are a lot of people in our own day that have really tried to wiggle away from those ter- terms everlasting and eternal. Because if we're all honest, it's tough to grapple with, right? You're mean to tell me that what happens with an individual in reference to Christ matters for forever? I mean, forever and ever? I mean, isn't there a stopping point at some point? J.C. Ryle. The state of things after the judgment is changeless and without end. The misery of the lost, the blessedness of the saved, are both alike in the fact that they're both forever. The misery of the lost will be forever. The blessedness of the saved will be Forever. He goes on. Let no man deceive us on this point. The eternity of God and heaven and hell all stand on the same foundation. He says, if we believe that God is eternal, and the word that's used to refer to God's eternal nature is in the scriptures, and that same word then is used to describe the, to eternity in heaven or the eternity in hell, then they all go together. If God is eternal, and that's what that word means, then it also means that there's an eternal heaven and there's also an eternal hell. 
This goes on and on and on and on. The same adjective is used to modify the punishment that the goats receive and the life that the sheep receive. You see, if you play games with the word there, eternal, then you play games with both. Let's at least be consistent. If, if it's not eternal punishment, then it's also not eternal life. Which way will you have it? Either we have non-eternal life and non-eternal punishment, or we have eternal life and we have eternal punishment. It's clear. The Bible does not teach universalism, nor does it teach inclusivism, that everyone, one way, shape, or form, or another goes to heaven. Nor does it teach annihilationism, that unbelievers just cease to exist. The Bible teaches there are eternal consequences for sin, and there is eternal blessedness in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Eternal consequences for sin, and eternal blessedness in Christ. One or the other, fixed forever. And that's why this is so sobering. And that, my dear friends, is why there's something super, super wrong. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of humor, but there's something super wrong when pulpits are replaced with stand-up comedy acts. What you've done is you just make the message of the gospel, which should be the most sobering thing we listen to, should be the most serious thing we contemplate, into something that's flippant. This is not a flippant matter. That's why there should be some passion and some heat from the pulpit. Because it affects, affects your entire eternity. This is not just talking about even the next year of your life, or the next five years of your life, or the next 20 years of your life, or the next 60 years of your life. We're talking about the next 100 gazillion bazillion years of your life. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's a sobering thing to talk about. And yet it's also tremendously joyous. Because... We get to tell people the good news. That they can be forgiven. That while their sin merits eternal consequence in hell, by God's grace in Christ, they can be granted eternal blessedness. Eternal inheritance with Him. If they refuse, though, they will see the penalty of their rebellion. fascinating. Jesus says, inherit your eternal inheritance. And no, he appends to this phrase, which was prepared before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Receive your inheritance, your eternal inheritance, which was prepared before the foundation of the world. Can you even begin to fathom how amazing that's going to be? I mean, I just made a, I guess Joel can fathom it. I, 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 I just made a mention earlier about lions and, and snakes and being able to, you know, that's, that's like the most minute tip of the iceberg to what it's going to be like. So often we fail to contemplate just how glorious the time to come is going to be through these ridiculous depictions of heaven like we're baby cherubs floating around in clouds. It's not at all the way that the Bible describes what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. Okay, maybe some of you this week saw opening ceremony to the Winter Olympics. You know, seven years or so, they said they were preparing for that you know, grandiose display, and they're talking about how massive these set pieces were that traveled through the place and all the rest. They had seven years preparing for that event, and human ingenuity can do quite a bit over that amount of time and with modern technological advances and all the rest. What do you think our homecoming is going to be like? What do you think our reception is going to be like when God has planned this before the foundation of the earth, what do you think that's going to be like? I mean, we're wowed by a couple of little, you know, pyrotechnics and some, you know, 600 projectors that are projecting onto the floor and, you know, snowflakes that don't all open up into the rings. You know, all this stuff. We're, we're awed by some of these sorts of things. But what is that going to be like? Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for us. What is it going to be like to enter into a place that Jesus has prepared for us? No. For us, personally, he's considered us. He is specially preparing a place for his children. It will be fitted to his glory and it will be fitted to our ultimate good. Our eternal happiness and joy in Christ will be experienced forever and ever with, ever, with never a stop. And while the sheep receive a place prepared for them, note this. The goats are thrown into a place prepared for the devil and his angels. The sheep inherit a place prepared for them. The goats receive a condemnation that was prepared for the devil and his angels. The description 
is right in line with Revelation 20. The devil together with the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Plague calls it the second death. Hades gives up all their dead. All those who are not in Christ cast into the lake of fire alongside of the devil and the beast and the false prophet. Anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who are not in Christ will experience torment and a torment that never ends. It's described as a place of burning fire, a place of utter darkness. A lot of people have struggled with that. Like, how is it possible? I and mean, whenever I see fire, it's always light. Um, again, remember, these are just descriptions just piling up on top of each other. It's going to be horrendous, horrible suffering. And you're not even going to even have good company while you're suffering through it. You know, one of the, the small, small, like, you know, uh, things that helps us through suffering sometimes is someone who has good company to sit with us, right? So if we're going about to go through surgery, having someone with us through it helps. But in that place of torment, you'll have the worst of company with you. Also note this. The devil is not in hell, like, you know, whipping everybody and causing them trouble. He himself is being judged in hell. (laughs) You're being judged alongside of Satan and the demons. If you're not in Christ. It's not fashionable today to speak of hell and judgment. Some people deny its existence. Others believe that their own conception of it doesn't include torment and pain. I mean, I've heard people before say, oh yeah, we're going to have a party in hell. We're excited about going to hell. We're going to have a party there. Some believe hell exists, but they don't say anything about it because they feel that it's improper to talk about it or it's not politically correct. They're concerned that they're going to be judged as judgmental. By the way, figure that one out a little bit later too. Um, Whenever you're called judgmental, they're making a judgment on you also. So anyway, but being called judgmental or unloving, But what is evident is that Jesus had no qualms about talking about hell. He spoke of it often. In fact, it's the most loving thing we can do to tell people not only of their sin, but of the consequences that are soon to follow should they not repent and trust in the one name under heaven by which they can be saved. Now, it is surely true that someone who goes, well, I'll believe in Jesus just so I don't have to go to hell. There's a problem there. Absolutely a problem there. Those who are truly converted love Jesus. Loving him who first loved you. Without love for Jesus, there's not real true conversion. However, that being said, people need to be provided with an explanation of what their sin has earned them. The wages of sin is death. So here's the good news, dear friends. That Jesus Christ came to rescue sinners. He came to take the punishment upon himself. He was willing to be separated from his father so we could be brought near. He fixed the division problem. He's the mediator between God and man. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He fulfilled all righteousness. He laid down his life as a sacrifice. He conquered sin in the grave. He's calling for sinners to repent and believe in him. If you will, then you too can be saved from the wrath to come. You can go from being a goat to being a sheep. You'd be granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places this morning. So life and death, the blessing and the curse, heaven and hell, They're all placed before us here this morning. What will it be for you? What will it be for you? The great divide is coming. Are you ready for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for passages such as these which highlight the reality of where we are now and where we're headed. I pray and plead that in these moments there would be a sobering consideration of the reality of eternity. That what is done now, here and now with Christ in this world impacts a person's eternal destiny. I pray that you would grant eyes to see this truth and hearts to believe it. I pray that you would grant eyes to see the glories of Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to suffer in the stead of wicked sinners, for taking the wrath of God on their behalf, being willing to be separated from your Father so that we could be united to him. Lord, I pray that You would encourage us all the more with every day that passes to show love and 
good deeds towards one another, to show compassion and care for one another. And may the love that we exhibit towards one another be an ongoing testimony to a world that's watching of the difference that Christ make, Christ does make in the life of a believer. We know any good in us is that which You have planted in us by Your grace. We ask that You continue to do Your work in our hearts and lives. We thank You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.